You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We hear a lot of stories about individuals these days. One person, one hero, one genius, one gunman. This is not one of those stories. This is the story about two people, learning to be together, learning to live as one. And it's the story, it seems, we were meant to hear first. Because if you go back to the very beginning, we're talking Garden of Eden beginning, the story you'll find there doesn't begin with one person. It begins with two. Yet that story of togetherness is not what we usually remember. Because of all the things we're told were present in that garden, man, woman, serpent, sex, temptation, deception, sin, death, the thing that's most important usually doesn't make the list. Yet it's the thing that's most critical for us to survive. It's the antidote to all the suffering the story says plagued us then, loneliness, isolation, anxiety, fear, and that plagues us even more today. It's the essence, the story insists, of what it means to be human. It's love. Bruce Feiler is the author of The Secrets of Happy Families, The Council of Dads, America's Prophet, Where God Was Born, Abraham, Walking the Bible, Dreaming Out Loud Under the Big Top, Looking for Class and Learning to Bow, His new book is The First Love Story, Adam and Eve and Us. Thank you for joining me, Bruce. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. This is so such an amazing book. When I first saw this book and figured out what it was about, I realized like you're in a way the first person to write about, say, the Rocky Mountains as if they've been there for a long time. (laughs) They're pretty important. (laughs) Maybe we ought to pay attention to them. Well, it's so, first of all, it's lovely to be here. And, and, and I, I appreciate that as a frame because, you know, when I first had this idea, and, and just to go back and, and set the stage a little. So, so for me, my process begins at my kitchen table. I have a working wife. I have uh, identical twin daughters. That means I spend a huge amount of time talking about the thing that we all struggle most with, right, which is the changing way men and women are relating to each other, right? It's this moment of tectonic transition, you know, the end of men. We have can we have it all? We have you know lean in, and in most of the way that we write about this, and I write a lot about this. My last two books were about this. I've written a hundred New York Times columns about it, and I'm usually kind of writing about the latest technology or the or, or the newest research, but. As someone who spent a lot of time in the ancient world, I can't help wondering, is there nothing from the past that's worth preserving? So a few years ago, we were in Rome, uh, and I had the uh, genius idea to take my sleep-deprived daughters on day one to the Vatican, right? Get some culture, see some art, and we take them, and they're doesn't go well, right? My feet hurt. This is boring. Why are there carpets on the wall? And so I'm like, get in the Sistine Chapel, girls. I'm going to blow your mind. And they look up, and then one of them sees Adam and God and says, well, oh, that's only men. Where am I in that picture? And her, and my mom is an art teacher, and I'd never notice. Her sister notices there's a woman under God's arm, and she says, is that is that Eve? And that's when I realized that this one story, as you just say, has been at the heart of every conversation about men, women, and sexuality for 3,000 years. 
And yet we never talk about it. And um, so, you know, the first response I got to people when I said, look, I'm going to travel around the world and look at the story of Adam and Eve and see if we can learn lessons from it today was, really? You know, it's like, so part of the people, half the people say, that's just a fairy tale. We know much more about human origins uh, today. And really, it's got nothing to teach us. Even people who care about religion, where I spend a lot of time, in, among those people, Adam and Eve have been supplanted by Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, Paul. I mean, Adam and Eve, I think of Adam and Eve as sort of the forgotten matriarch and patriarch. They live in an old age home down in Boca. We we, <laughs> yeah. kind of, we roll them out once a year. They sit in the corner for the family occasion and I nobody like talks that. to them. And that's a total shame because they actually do have a lot to teach us. <laughs> I, I think that uh, there's a word you said that Remind that comes back again and again in this book. I think this is the heart of this book, which is mm. story. Mm. That this is a story, uh, and what's nice is that not only this is the story of a story. So you have you found yourself creating a story arc mm. uh, as you were looking at a story that is really at the heart of all story. So this is wow. There's so many ways I can answer that question. Um, let me just. Let me tiptoe in in two or three different ways, okay? Yeah. The first is um, I'm obsessed with stories. Not only am I a storyteller, but I have written a lot in recent years about the power of family stories. Actually, in my last book, The Secrets of Happy Families, uh, the most interesting idea that I encountered is the importance of sharing our family story with our children. Researchers at Emory, Marshall Duke and uh, Robin Vivish did this research that shows that children who know more about their family history have a greater degree of self-confidence and a sort of a higher sense that they can control the world around them. It's the number one predictor of a child's emotional well-being. And they compared these results with a rash of other personality tests. That makes so, perfect sense, and it's so interesting. Right. And and, and, and it's uh, this idea has kind of popped. I, I give a lot of talks about story and, and kind of work with companies and corporations and families about crafting your story. So first of all, family stories are central to who we are. And secondly... You know, in the opening chapter of the first love story, as you know, I'm in I'm in um, southern Israel at an archaeological dig, and I'm talking to this uh, man who's an, a specialist in the Neolithic world, and he's talking to me about Adam and Eve, and he was making this incredible, fascinating reading about how it shows the transition from kind of Paleolithic times to Neolithic times, because in the garden there's abundance, there's lots of food and supply, but when they leave. Uh, one of the things that God says is that you're going to have to then work by the sweat of your brow, right? So there's this idea we're going to have to start working for food, which is what happens as kind of human evolution moves forward. And, and so that was interesting. But what I looked at the guy and said, as you know, is I said, wait a minute, you're an archaeologist. So you're supposed to be the kind of person who's going to tell me that the Bible is a work of fiction and we don't have to care about it. And he said to me, I mean, he's the kind of pusty old guy whose skin is flaking because he spent decades in the sun. And he says to me, are you kidding? Do you know how many stories were in the ancient world? There were millions of stories in the ancient world. Do you know how many stories are in the Bible? Like a few dozen. Do you know how good those stories had to be in order to survive? And like, so I take these stories very seriously because they have profound truth. And so that really is, you know, as you say, the heart of this book, because one of the things that you find in this story, just to sort of frame our conversation a little bit, is the story is an amazing story of love and relationships and togetherness and forgiveness and stick to and constancy. As they come together, they separate, they get kicked out of Eden, they stay together, they have children, one of them kills the other, they stay together. 
God needs them to succeed. The story is a success. But that's not the story that we remember because what happens is organized religion gets a hold of the story and uses it to elevate Eve, dump on, excuse me, elevate Adam and dump on Eve and by extension all women. And effectively, the story was weaponized for thousands of years and it becomes the central plank in women's uh, discrimination. I I think that uh, for me, uh, as I read this book, that the power of the the stories, um, just in terms of the individual places you go, mm-hmm. rooting the book in in real places and real travels is very interesting, and this works well as a it's a fantastic travel log. <laughs> of course, uh, unfortunately, uh, Joni Mitchell proves yes, to yes. be <laughs> a, 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 a prophet. So so tell us why Joni Mitchell is a prophet and how that ties to your village. You're a visit to an obscure part of uh, Iraq. Well, I love this story, and my, my wife keeps telling me that 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 I'm, I'm beating this Joni Mitchell line of mine to death. But <laughs> I, I'm happy to have an excuse to retell it here, you know, in the uh, uh, in this context. So, okay, let's again set the stage here. Uh, I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. I grew up in a sticky place, and I've spent my ad- entire adult life. I'm a, I'm weeks away now from going to my 30th college reunion, having never held a job. And so my my job has been to travel around the world, have experiences, and come back and write about them. It's been a great way uh, to live my uh, life. And if you go back to the beginning for Japan, the circus, country music, this is sort of how I spent the first 20 years of my career. And it was really now 20 years ago that I first had this idea of retracing the Bible through the desert and reading the stories along the way. So walking the Bible is the journey through the Middle East. I climbed Mount Ararat. I crossed the Red Sea. I tasted manna. Um, I made a, a book, as you know, that spent a year and a half on the bestseller list. I made a TV series for PBS. Um, and when I first had this idea to write about Adam and Eve, the question was, where am I going to go, right? Because I'm used to going to the places in the story, and there are not that many places in the story of Adam and Eve. So <laughs> there's only one, which is what you brought up, which I'll get to. But what happens is I start pulling these strings and realizing, oh, my gosh, in every generation, different people have encountered the story. So Michelangelo, John Milton, Mary Shelley, and Frankenstein – turns out to be about Adam and Eve, Mark Twain, Ernest Hemingway. So I get to go on this incredible scavenger hunt around the world looking not just at the story, but as how other people told and retold the story and how its meaning evolves. But you asked me about Iraq. So the Bible says the conflu- that the Garden of Eden is placed at the confluence of four rivers. Uh, two of them we don't know. One is the Tigris, uh, Tigris, the other is the Euphrates. They meet today in southern Iraq. Um, and I went there in, uh, in 2004. It was a year after Saddam fell. It was just when it was it was foolhardy, but not you know entirely death defying. Okay, it was stupid, but not idiotic. Somehow that <laughs> distinction mattered at the time. <laughs> I was with security. We go and at where the Tigris and Euphrates meet. As you said, there is a garden. It's about as big as this studio that we're in, which is you know sort of like a you know mid-sized public bathroom, and there are three living olive trees and one dead olive tree, and it's covered in concrete. <laughs> that leads me to say, Joni Mitchell was right. They paved paradise, right? So, um, And it's easy to kind of romanticize this as where the Garden of Eden is, but the truth is Saddam diverted the rivers in the 80s, so they've only actually met there for about 20 years. And in fact, Kuwait, which is sort of the next country over, wasn't even there in the ancient world. So, But what is actually, in fact, meaningful is surrounding this is this huge array of marshland. And if you go back and look at the opening verses of Genesis, it talks about land emerging out of a watery chaos. And that's exactly the feeling that you get when you're in southern Iraq 
even today. In fact, Saddam uh, drained the swamps so that the Shiites couldn't hide there, and they've been kind of repopulated. It's one of the positive things that came out of uh, our involvement in otherwise lots of negative ways. Um, but the um, you really get a sense that the story is grounded in this kind of marshy, uh, half-liquid, half-solid terrain. Now, you talked to a man there, uh, Yossi Garfinkel, hmm. uh, and I, I thought he had made some really interesting uh, interpretations uh, of the story. And I think that what what we see, essentially that even the fact that he's interpreting the story is is a intuition to us, should be an intuition to us to understand that this story is everywhere. It's underneath everything. It really is, and that's right. He's the archaeologist I was referring to a few seconds ago. And so let's put this, let's ask us kind of a simple question here as a way of answering that question, which is, you know, who are Adam and Eve? Like, what do we know about them? So they first appear, uh, as we just were talking a second ago, in the opening verses of Genesis. And the first thing that you discover is there's not one story about their origins, there are two. The that second fascinating. Isn't that interesting? So yeah. the second story is more famous. That's Adam being created from the earth. That's Eve being created from his body. It's not the rib. We can come back to that. She goes off and eats the fruit. It's not an apple. We can come back to that. Uh, they get the two of them. He eats too. They get kicked out of Eden. Um, they have two children, Cain and Abel. One murders the other. Um, and then they come together and they have Seth, the, the third child. And it's Seth that goes on to populate the human line. So all that's the second story. And one of the reasons that we know it better is through most of history, it introduces this idea that appears to be the big question, which is who is God's chosen sex, male or female, okay? Um, but when you go back and look at the first story, it's totally different, okay? So you've got um, God creates this ungendered human being, and this creation is divided into two, into male and female. So the story begins in utter equality. What's true for the man is also true for the woman. And I think even more, in, there's two more things about this story that are even more interesting, which is number one, in this age of gender beyond the binary, in this idea, in this moment of kind of gender and sexual fluidity, the idea that sort of male and female kind of carry a bit of the other around within them is arresting. I mean, the idea that the, it's that timeless. the, the Bible might have you know, introduced this concept <laughs> of transgender, you know, so many years before now, it's sort of in, in all of our lives is interesting. But in terms of the archaeology, it's the next point that also nobody thinks of that's even more important. And that is that the Bible represents a breakthrough in thought. In all the other stories of the ancient world, Okay, this, this is part is of what I was talking about with Yossi Language. Yeah, you've got God, and the humans being created by God and a God or a God and a human. Okay, the Bible is the first story in which a God, a God gives the power of creation to two human beings. Okay, so you've got a singular God giving power to two human beings. In fact, if you want to go even one step further, you've got a singular plural God. So God is singular in the Bible, but then let us make humans in our image. You get the singular plural God creating this male-female singular plural uh, humanity and saying, basically, you guys figure it out. So that's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of people are invested in this idea that the story is a failure. Even in the days since the first love story has been published, I've gotten a lot of hate mail saying, you know, you're you're bastardizing the story. You should be visited by the wrath of God. I hope you die. I mean, you kind of. I've been writing about religion a long time. I'm kind of shocked by this. But what part of it is? God needs them to succeed. The first thing he said is, says is, be fruitful and multiply to them. And they do. It takes them a while. They figure it out. It is a success. God needs it to succeed because he doesn't have the power of procreation. He gives it to human beings. 
in, in the archaeology and history of the ancient world, that is a revolution. I just thought it was so interesting to me the way that the, you discovered this in the language of the mm. Bible and the semantics that that um, this understanding of that a cultural understanding derives almost from the mathematical uh, relationships between the words. And I think, too, mm. that this That's comes— a beautiful question. Uh, way to phrase it. Uh, too, uh, out of this idea that— um, before Adam and Eve, in theory, there could be no story, so to speak, because there was nothing to understand a story. Well, I, I, first of all, I, I want to pick up on that beautiful way you expressed that because I've never kind of thought about it this way. But I have—I mentioned earlier—I have adolescent daughters. Okay, they're 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 twelve, and this week, actually, even though I'm sitting here with you, they back in Brooklyn where I live are picking. Um, Picking languages, and they're picking languages to study. Uh, actually, they've chosen Latin and ancient Greek, as it happens. Um, but um, we've been in these conversations with educators and people in the school as we've been having these conversations about this correlation between language learning and math. Like there's this, like if you're, it's like music, math, and languages. Like that, this, the, the brain skill set uh, uh, appears to have some overlap. And what's interesting is that. The, the, there is, is this mathematical quality to the words. And let's remember, how does God create the world in the Bible? God creates the world in the Bible by using words, right? Let there be light. Let there be. This is good. This is not good. There is a kind of, 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 of formula to it. It's almost like, a, almost like, to go even one step further, kind of in the computer language, a kind of bi a binary language, good, bad, male, female. It, it's suggesting that, 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 that there is this duality to life and that creation is co-creation. That's one of the beautiful things about the story. And it, later when we move into the kind of when it becomes about love, kind of the thing I learned about love is that love is a story we tell with another person. So there is this sense of duality in the story, there are two stories. There's Adam and Eve. There's this story number one, story number two. There's this idea of co-creation. There's this idea. And, and by the way, I mean, we're sitting here, you know, let's put this in, this, to, in ground. We're sitting here in San Francisco and, you know, people listening to us in the valley and places like that. Th this idea is is ripe in the world of entrepreneurial uh, disruption these days, that th this idea of, of communal working in groups, working together to solve problems, that's one of the beauties of this story. And it's so simple. It's not a one story, it's a two story. One of the things that's important to realize is that we have the Bible, which is a religious document, telling us essentially how to behave. But that document gives us the first two characters in that document telling us how to behave are Adam and Eve. And the idea that Adam and Eve are characters is kind of revolutionary in a way. It is because, in you know, I, I interviewed a, a, a professor at Hebrew University who is the leading expert in, in ancient stories. And he was saying that, you know, when, when he looks at this story, what, pop, what pops out to him is that these are named individuals, right? That, that, that stories in the ancient world tended to focus on kings, on leaders, and gods. That here you have, have everyday people, but they're not just everyday people. They're everyday people with names and characteristics and personalities, with strengths and weaknesses. This is a very, 
very big deal. And in fact, I mean, you say that this is a religious document. Actually, I mean, kind of the way I might characterize it is it is a, it, it's it in all likelihood was an oral story that was passed down through time that then gets embedded in this very kind of uh, proto-religious document. And then what happens is that organized religion, which in effect follows organized, I mean, this story was would have been passed down for, for generations. It was probably first written down about 3,000 years ago, about 1,000 BCE. And But organized Judaism is 500 years in the future. Organized cre- uh, Christianity is 500 years after that. And in the early years of organized Judaism and Christianity, there's a big debate about what the story is supposed to mean. So it, it, it actually, the story I hear in the story, an echo of the kind of pre-religious times, maybe even an echo, as you and I discussed this in the book, of an echo of a time when, when male and female gods shared power more equally. I mean, it's, it's hard to remember in a kind of patriarchal time that we think that this was always the case, but it was not. Uh, men and women shared power more equally, and uh, male and female gods shared power more equally. And that was slowly written down over time. And the rise of organized religion corresponds to the rise of patriarchy and I think one of the powerful things here is you go back and you see fundamental equality between male and female. Eve is the primary actor in the story. She initiates. She's not secondary in, in any way. She, she initiates the marital crisis by eating the fruit. She, cut, she initiates the reconnection with Adam. They, they, the, he initiates the lovemaking that produces the children. She gives them the name. Naming is more powerful in the ancient world. Eve really is the first to lean in. She really is the first independent woman. And it's our inability to see that. And as we move forward thousands of years in the early years of the women's movement, when they went back to the story, a lot of it was to try to undermine how this story had been weaponized against women for centuries. This is such a fascinating insight and uh, such a, a great example of the power and the ubiquity of this story. It shows up so so many places. And one of the things, too, is it's really important to understand all the plot points uh-huh. of this story. Uh-huh. So maybe talk about the, you know, how we understand the plot points. And you, there are two. In fact, you were referring earlier to the two different stories. So I, okay, think I think of the story as being like a modern American Hollywood three act movie. Okay, mm-hmm. Act One is the meeting, the meet up, the getting together. The it has this incredible meet cute. What happens is meet cute. Got, yeah, <laughs> it's got this great meet cute. Yeah. Okay, he falls asleep and wakes up, and there's his wife. Right. Okay. So. Um, um, okay, so what do you got? You've got um, uh, back to the kind of the chronology, and this is mostly what ha- takes place in story number two, uh, which takes place in Genesis two to five. So basically, a- Adam Adam comes first in this version of the story. You've got the animals there, and Adam is looking for a partner. So I think of it as being this. So the animals like parade in front of him. I think of him. Think of this as this great Tinder moment, right? Swipe left, swipe left, swipe left. I don't want to be with the rhinoceroses. I don't want to be with the giraffes. I don't want to be with the roosters. He looks up and God says what I think is the most important line of the whole story. Uh, It's not right for humans to be alone. Okay, We are made for connection. We need human relations. Cut 3,000 years to today. What has positive psychology told us? Happiness is our relations with other people. The biggest threat to that is loneliness. So from the opioid crisis to the suicide crisis, we have a public health crisis today of loneliness. What's the first thing that God says about humans? It's not right for humans to be alone. 
spoil. Let's just pause on that moment for a second. If you think the science and technology have rendered religion (laughs) moot, here's a beautiful example where that's not true. I just came from the Deep South before I came here. If you think religion and the Bible has all truth and who needs modern science, another beautiful example where that's not true. You put the two in dialogue with each other, it becomes electrifying. Okay? So then you have the meat cute. He falls asleep. Uh, she formed from his side, not his rib. I teased it earlier. I'll say it now. Uh, Selah is the Hebrew word. They stand side by side. And by the way, he looks at her and she's she's the one. Okay? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Do I need to say here, you know, on this conversation what bone and flesh mean? He's sexually aroused, right? The uh, the, the soulmate. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Literally. Right? Um, <laughs> the soulmate, the body mate, the bone mate, whatever it is. And what does the text say? The two of them are happy and no, no shame. Okay? It's all, it's great. It's peace and harmony. It's the honeymoon. Um, she quickly goes bored. She wants more. She doesn't want to be second fiddle. She wants autonomy, agency. She goes off. She eats the fruit. What is the fruit? It's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. She wants knowledge. She wants independence. She wants autonomy. Uh, she eats the fruit. It's not an apple, by the way. It's Apples are not native to the ancient Near East. The Bible just says fruit. But she eats it, and then there's this great moment in Milton in Paradise Lost where, where she says, ooh, I should keep the power for myself. It would be a win for the female sex. But she says, oh, so dear, I miss Adam. So she goes back to Adam, and he's like, oh, he can be dutiful, or he can be with her. He says, I'll choose love over obligation. He chooses. That's the great love moment. They've now chosen each other. They're off the fence. Um, And they pay the consequence. They leave Eden, at which point they could split. The story could end, but they don't. They come together. They have children, Um, Cain and Abel. Cain murders Abel. Um, lots of reasons why. Um, are they fighting over a girl? Or, you know, she, he's from the settled land. She, he's a wanderer. They make, you know, offerings to God. It's unequal. He kills her, and he gets banished. Now, here's the real crisis. Yet again, it has failed. <laughs> the relationship has failed. They could break apart. The story will not get going. In fact, the text says there's a period of separation, 130 years, where they are apart. But then they come back together, forgive each other, and have Seth, and he populates the human line. So as I've been saying, you know, in this entire conversation, God needs it to succeed, and it is a success. There are setbacks. You could even say there's sin, if you like that word. But there's also resilience, forgiveness, strength, coming back together. And I think of that moment in Hamilton where Alexander and Eliza are estranged. Alexander has cheated on Eliza, and um, uh, their son is killed in a duel. And we think that it's bad for a relationship. It turns out it's not. They come back together. The most beautiful song in the entire production of Hamilton is It's Quiet Uptown. They take long walks. They go to the garden. And then the entire company sings forgiveness. Can you imagine? When you're in a crisis, it takes an act of imaginativeness to get over the unimaginable. And that's what Adam and Eve are the first to do. And that's a really powerful moment in in human history in the Bible's terms. Well, I think that this is an example where the science, uh, what I might call the science of story, Mm. comes into play. And and maybe that's what we're talking about here, is that the the science of story would tell us, would explain that story. This story is like, I guess, an engine that has been planted in the human consciousness and can just steamroll through the ages. And in any age, it will... Um, find ways to be used. So, Look, I just want to... The science of storytelling, I mean, I'm obsessed with this. I said I was at storytelling. I was uh, at Stanford with the people who study stories out there mathematically, the computer science of stories. And, you know, 
a dot in time is not a story. Mm-hmm. Okay. In fact, no. a dot in time can be happiness. It can be whatever it is. It's not a dot. One is not a story. You need two. Once you have two, you have a story. Okay. That could be connecting two people. It could be connecting two moments in time. It could be connecting, getting from point A to point B. So a, a story needs two. And once you have two, there is conflict between the two. And what, how that conflict is played out becomes the element of story. So here you've got two, and arguably you've got three. <laughs> and then if you want to add this, you've got Adam and Eve and God. And if you throw in the snake, technically you've got four. But this is going to create conflict. But the vectors, I mean, the way I think about stories is the vectors. And the vectors of this are very, very powerful. And the difference between happiness and meaning is that happiness is a point in time and meaning is a continuum. And so therefore, once you have story, you in effect have what is the meaning of the story. And the reason that this story, the first love story, the story of Adam and Eve, arguably the greatest story ever told, has power is because how you make the meaning, how you interpret it, is the essential act. That's where the mathematical storytelling, because you had organized religion who used this story essentially to elevate God, said never disagree with God, always be always be this, man are superior, women is inferior. Um, that's how the story was used. But there's this rival narrative of how Michelangelo and Milton and Mary Shelley and the, you know, the women's movement and modern science today interpret the story, and their meaning is different. But So we're, we don't argue about the story. We argue about what is the meaning of the story. About how that it's it's just a tool until it's used in one manner or another. Well, that's exactly right. And let's just let's just use the most visible. Let's just mm-hmm. go back to Michelangelo. Okay. So for the first fifteen hundred years of Christianity, this story is used. And when I say elevate men and keep down women, this is not casual language. I mean, they said, "Oh, Adam was created from Earth, and Eve was created from the rib." Why? Because because if you put Earth. Um, uh, on the side of the road for three days, nothing will happen to it. If you put a rib, it will start to smell. And that's why women have to wear perfume because they were made from the rib and they'll start to smell. But why did God not choose the brain? Because they would be equal thinkers. Why not choose the hands? Because they would be equal workers. They chose the rib because a rib is small and insignificant and given to putrefaction. And women are small and insignificant and given to putrefaction. I mean, even if you know there's patriarchy, when you read this stuff in black and white, it's just like mind-blowing and and stomach turning. It's just unbelievable. Um, but So Michelangelo comes along. We're 1,500 years into this, right? And he's asked to paint, as you know, I was in the Sistine Chapel alone twice, and it looks quite different when you're alone. Um, he paints nine panels down the spine. The first three are the creation of the world. The last three, the drunkenness of Noah. The middle are the creation of humans. And we all think, I thought, that Adam and God, I'm pointing my fingers because I can't talk about this without pointing my fingers through the air, is the most important, but that's not what Michelangelo thinks is the most important. That's the first image, meaning it's four of nine. It's the next image, image five, that's the center of the entire chapel. That's the creation of Eve. You have Adam lying to the left. You have God standing on the right. You have Eve coming from his side, Adam's side, by the way, Michelangelo knew his Bible, looking toward God. She's the bridge between the two. She's the exact center. And let's remember, this is the malest place on earth. Women were not even <laughs> let in for another 250 years. This is the private chapel of the popes. And so he makes Eve. He does more to elevate Eve than anybody in the first 1,500 years of Christianity. As he said, God provided the words and I provided the pictures. Uh, and then the next image where they're reading for the fr- reaching for the fruit, Adam and Eve together reach for the fruit, not her, not him, together they are clearly partners. So again, you have narrative, you have the story, you have what religion is doing to the story, and then you have this counter narrative, what all these writers and thinkers and poets are doing. And those those 
to religion and a kind of a religion, if you will, um, are um, are in tension with each other. And that's another amazing part of this story of, of, of the first love story of Adam and Eve. You know, I was just thinking that if you put on here a subtitle, a feminist study. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Number one bestseller. Yes. Well, it's funny. It's funny that you say that. It's really funny that you say that because, of course, in some ways, that's what it is. I mean, so here's the great here's the great paradox, right? Eve is the primary player mm-hmm. in the story and the hero yeah. of the story. Yes. Barbara Lewowski, who's the head Milton scholar, says to me that it's an Eviad, right? Like an Iliad, an Eviad. But here's the thing: Wow, this story has been around for thirty centuries. For the first twenty-eight centuries, only men are allowed to talk about it publicly. Once women are allowed to talk about it publicly. Our interpretation, shocking, begins to change. So let's just want to, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, <laughs> in 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York, she and Eliz- uh, Susan B. Anthony start the women's movement. And Stanton is the brains and, and Anthony is the public face. But Stanton has seven kids and a husband in Congress, so she's busy. So uh, Anthony would come to her and say, hey, write me a speech. And she said, well, I'm busy. And Anthony would say, okay, I'll take care of the kids and, and stir the pudding. You, um, you write me my speech so I can go give it. The two of them fight for women's equality in the courts, in divorce laws, in property rights, in voting rights. Stanton declares herself a candidate for Congress, the first woman to ever do so. And what happens is they're continually frustrated. Why? Because someone says, oh, um, women can't have property rights because Eve is created, because the Bible says Eve is created second and Adam is created first. Women cannot have the rights to to vote because Eve, the Bible says Eve is made from the rib and Adam is superior. So she realizes after 50 years that if she's going to take on women's rights, politicians are not her biggest problem. Preachers are. So she has to rewrite the Bible, and she does. In 1895, she publishes a book called The Woman's Bible. Um, it go, She's one of the most famous women in America. It goes back to... Genesis 1. Look, they're created equally. Our great creator wants them to be the same. She publishes this book in two volumes, 1895 and 1898. It's a landmark. It's a bestseller. It's a disaster. The organization that she founded with Susan B. Anthony gets together in Baltimore, has an, a, a vote, and kicks her out of the organization. The reason that we know Anthony today and not Stanton, that she's on our money, is because she took on the, the most famous couple in the world. She took on the story of Adam and Eve, and she got flattened. It wasn't for 100 years until the second wave of feminism that she began to regain some of her reputation. And that's one of the, the many fascinating stories in this book. And it's so interesting to see, I guess, the deep and far reach of this story, the, the, the places that, that it plays out. And you have mentioned this man a couple times, and, and I think he, he certainly deserves. Let, let's talk about uh, Paradise Lost and John Milton. I mean, uh, um, amazing work of Christ. art. First of all, the Milton story is crazy interesting. Like, in high school, they should not teach Paradise Lost. They should just teach the story of Milton because it's <laughs> yeah. so interesting. So Milton is a love-sick, love-struck poet, right? So he writes love poetry. He's obsessed with love, but he's also deeply religious. He's in his 30s. He's still a virgin. He's never gotten married. Um, and he's working for his father, who's a lawyer. And he goes to get a document signed from a justice of the peace in Oxford, and he returns 
perhaps with the document, but also with his 17-year-old daughter as a wife. And so the two of them uh, get married. Mary Powell at 17. They go on the honeymoon. Uh, she comes back. She goes home to tell her parents about, about, uh, about, the, uh, about the honeymoon, and she never returns to her husband. So he is devastated. He writes. He doesn't just drink. He writes five tracks, 60,000 words, arguing that divorce, which at the time was illegal, should be legal. And how does he justify it? This is the 17th century England by saying, Look at Adam and Eve. You should have an apt and cheerful conversation. You should have a loving relationship. You shouldn't, having a marriage is not just to create children. It's also to be loving and supportive partners. He goes on to rise in the government during the during the, the revolution, the counter-revolution. He's pushed out. He's disgraced. His friends are killed or tarred and feathered or in prison. He's forced to live in Bun, near Bunhill Farm Cemetery, a kind of disgraced cemetery on the eastern edge of London on, the, on Jewin Street which is the only street in England where Jews are allowed to live. Like, that's how disgraced it was. And it's here, late in his life, that he returns to Adam and Eve and makes this argument in Paradise Lost that it was a systematic, clear, careful argument that Adam and Eve were in love. And let's remember, he does it while entirely blind and in iambic pentameter. (laughs) Um, So when we first meet them, they're together. They're happy. Conjugal wedded bliss. Eve goes off. She wants more. She eats the fruit. Uh, as I uh, uh, as I was saying earlier, and she's like, oh, I should keep the power to myself, but I really want this relationship with Adam. She goes back. He's got the dilemma, but he realizes love is important to him. And the last line in the story, uh, when it's supposed to be paradise lost, they're walking hand in hand, each in their solitary way, headed for a far happier place. So even he acknowledges that leaving Eden, and let's remember what God does at that moment, he wraps them in protective clothing, is actually better for the two of them and in some ways better for history because we need this moment in order to set up uh, in order to set up all the story that follows in part this book is a, in a sense a, a history of our understanding of love hmm. itself well that really was one of the, the shocking things I mean I've done a few this is my whatever 12th book and um, I was surprised by that, really. I, I kind of went in to write a book about Adam and Eve, and I ended up writing a book about love and how our understanding of it um, has evolved over time. And it sort of begins in the ancient world as something that really is a gift from God. Then in the Middle Ages, kind of human beings begin to have a, a role in it until today that love really, in some ways, has become the chief way that we find meaning in our lives. I mean, as you know, I talked to a philosopher who wrote a book on the history of love, who was saying to me that in some ways love has replaced God as the big source of identity and meaning in our lives. We have sort of so romanticized it. I'm not sure I would go that far. I know a lot of people who like love and also like God. Um, But I think that the point is that love as, you know, kind of what's happened in human society is that we used to be given meaning by our parents, by our communities, by our jobs. It was just handed to us kind of when we were born. Now, we have to make meaning ourselves. And uh, through our lives, we can choose our religion, we can choose our mate, we can choose our gender, we, we can choose everything about us. We go on social media and tell our stories all the time. So everybody is involved in meaning making and love is, is, is central to that. And I think that, that, that that's one of, I think, the, the reason that this matters. I think this just would be interesting. I think the reason it matters is, first of all, we're all struggling to balance men and women and male and female relations and, and male-male relations and female-female relations and all the other ways that humans interact. And this story has been at the heart of it for all these centuries. We can't just forget about it and pretend it doesn't matter. It still does matter. I mean, we're here in California, right? Not Adam and Eve, but 
not Adam and Steve, but Adam and Eve. I mean, the story was weaponized even in that conversation about gay rights as a way to argue against it. And that's, uh, you know, a completely unfair reading of the story. The story is about the need for companionship. And obviously it's about procreation. we got to get the Bible going. But it's about the power the power of love and the, and the need for co-creation through co-narration. That's clearly what the story is about. So I think it ends up, it matters because how we relate to each other. And it matters because I, it matters, I think, that our, that our founding story be a success, not a failure. Because it shows that the default can be set to success, even in the face of hardship, pain, difficulty, discretion. The new book by Bruce Feiler is The First Love Story, Adam, Eve, and Us. Thank you for joining me, Bruce. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. What a, what a great conversation. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.